Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I'm Farah Jassat and I'm the producer of How I Found My Voice, a podcast by Intelligence Squared. We hope you enjoyed this episode, but just before the main event, I wanted to let you know that this season of How I Found My Voice is sponsored by The Out, an innovative premium car rental service powered by Jaguar Land Rover. If you live in London, like me, and want to get out of the city for a weekend, The Out is designed for us. It's a premium car rental service without the hassle. Just download the app, book your vehicle, and a car will be delivered to your doorstep within three hours of booking. When you're done, the car will also be picked up from your chosen location. My colleague recently used the service and loved how easy it was. He went on a last-minute weekend trip to Brighton using a Land Rover Discovery Sport. They have a whole range of premium vehicles to choose from, including the Range Rover Sport and the all-electric Jaguar I-Pace. In every booking, you get unlimited mileage, additional drivers, fully comprehensive insurance, and even the congestion and dart charge included. So if you're a Londoner who wants to rent a car in style, download the Out app today. Now let's go to this week's episode. Every morning we would sing the Ugandan national anthem. Oh Uganda, the land of freedom, we lay our future in thy hands. United we for liberty together we'll always stand. There was a cocktail party at the Rees Moggs. Uh, I knocked on the door and the door was opened by his son. His son turned round to his father and said, Dad, it's that lefty off the telly. <laughs> Mr Snow? Yes? Mr Snow, I need to talk to you. I'm the military attaché uh, at the British Embassy. I understand you have been to a very secret place and that you have a very great deal of film. And I'm afraid I must ask you for your film. I said, I'm very sorry, but you're British. I'm in Iran. You have no power over me at all. No, get stuffed. Hello and welcome to How I Found My Voice, a podcast from Intelligence Squared. I'm Samira Ahmed and I'm going behind the celebrity persona to find out what influences shape their success. How did politicians, artists, writers and performers grow up to become such great and unique communicators? If you enjoy this episode, do rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. 
Jon Snow has been the face of Channel 4 News for 30 years. He joined ITN as a reporter in 1976 and as a reporter has covered many of the world's most important stories across the Middle East and Central America, the fall of the Berlin Wall. His many awards include the Richard Dimbleby BAFTA Award for Best Factual Contribution to Television, Royal Television Society Awards for Journalist of the Year and Presenter of the Year. And I should say I worked alongside John for 11 years at Channel 4 News, co-presenting for many of them and it was always great fun working with you and I've always felt about you and you've cycled here this morning you have this boyish energy which I think is quite unique in journalism I want to take you back then your father was the Bishop of Whitby your mother Joan a pianist it was I think it's fair to say a pretty privileged background and you were a choral scholar at Winchester Cathedral what were you like as a child growing up in the 1950s I guess it was I think inevitably if you talk about how I found my voice that's the period which is probably the most important in my life uh, growing up was a funny old business. I had two brothers, one older, one younger, and we were in the depths of the Sussex countryside. My father was the headmaster of a of a public school there called Ardingly before he became a bishop. It was slightly austere, I'd say. I mean, there were prayers every morning. We would stand in descending order of seniority, uh, my father down to the gardener. Um, so, I mean, it was privileged in a way, but it was also very austere. Being a scholar, choral scholar, I mean... What was that like for your voice in a literal sense? Well, I mean, uh, my mother, um, being a pianist, uh, played a lot, played a lot of Brahms in the house on a beautiful 1910 Blutner Grand piano. And I would stand by her and watch her playing. And then gradually I began to actually hum or even sing elements of what she was playing. So she realised I had music in me somehow. This was when I was about seven, just seven. And uh, she persuaded my father that I should be put in for what were called voice trials. My father, having been to Winchester College, insisted that if this was to happen, it would have to be Winchester Cathedral. So I was taken down there and subjected to these trials, which really involved singing a little town of Bethlehem and a few arpeggios and scales. And I got in, one of four, and really for six years, it was paradise. I mean, a wonderful, gorgeous, amazing building, an extraordinarily close relationship with the other kids in the choir. Because of saints' days and feast days and the rest of it, we'd be taken out of school to go and do these things, and we were very often have very short holidays. I mean, Christmas holidays were non-existent because we had to be there for the 12 days of Christmas. Then there was Easter, Ascension, and all the rest of it. So, and the trouble really was that I wasn't very interested in the rest of what was involved in going to school. It was just music. But you did love the music. Loved it. And I obviously your voice will have changed, not least because it's broken since then. But I just wonder, you know, are there skills you learnt then that you still use? Do you still sing? Would you give us a... A rendition of anything that you can remember? I think that basically it, what it taught me was about projection, about uh, phraseology, about the music in the spoken word, the fact that you raise and lower your voice when making emphasis and the rest of it. I mean, it taught me to speak. And the only prize I ever won at school was a reading prize, the Bradford Martin Reading Prize, did you know you wanted to be a journalist? No, I hadn't a clue, no, absolutely not. No idea what I wanted to be. And I wasn't really very bright either. I mean, I really scrambled to get into a, a secondary school, 
You know, I mean, they, they accepted me because I, I was musical, so I got a music exhibition. But really the problem was that school didn't really interest me very much other than the music and the naughtiness. Um, Tell me about you know, the naughtiness. Naughtiness was always a rebellious. Uh, I mean, the choir school was quite austere, um, and there were very few kind of hobbies or anything like that. And so we set some up. We set up an activities club. We published a weekly newspaper. We published, I mean, it was all handwritten and hand-drawn. Uh, but everybody put their hand to it. And uh, that was sort of the first creative element. But I didn't have any idea of what a newspaper entailed or what the press entailed or what being in the media entailed. And as a child looking back, was there a book or a film or something that inspired you? Well, I mean, I have to go a long way back. I mean, there, there was a, a wonderful series of children's books, which I'm sure are far too old-fashioned for anyone to read nowadays, the Little Grey Rabbit books. Of course, you must understand that Grey Rabbit's home had no electric light or gas, and even the candles were made from pith of rushes dipped in wax from the wild bees' nests, which Squirrel found. Water there was in plenty, but it did not come from a tap. And one of the Little Grey Rabbit books involved Hare, who was the sort of male star of the whole business, going to war. And all the weasels and the rest of it, who were the enemy, uh, had saucepans on their heads and the rest of it. And I, I suddenly uh, did wake up to what war might entail. It was a funny way to learn about war, but the animals went to war with each other. I mean, Little Grey, Grey Rabbit's side won, obviously, inevitably, because she was the heroine of the book. But that book had a little uh, big impact because, I mean, I was only six or seven or less. How would you say it affected you then? Well, I mean, just just the consciousness that there was conflict. And don't forget, I was growing up in the aftermath of war. My parents talked about war a lot. Um, everybody talked about war a lot. I mean, these were the 50s. Uh, you know, I went to this school in 1956. That was only you know, less than a decade after the end of the Second and World War. And, of course, war. the Korean War was even more recent. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, there was war around the place and then there was Suez and all that. The world was a, a war sort of place. I'm interested that when you left school, you went to do a voluntary service overseas in Uganda. And I've been struck by other great journalists who've spent time volunteering. Lindsay Hilson, Channel 4 News' international editor, I think has done something similar. How did it shape your voice as a journalist when you did become a journalist? Well, I should back up a bit simply because... Um, I didn't get into university. My A-levels were so bad. Um, I mean, I literally got one A-level at school. In what? Uh, what did I get it in? English. C, which I thought was remarkably good. <laughs> um, I had very low expectations. And then I went to a tech in Scarborough, my father being Bishop Whitby up there. A polytechnic? No, a tech. I went to a tech to get some A-levels, more A-levels. Oh, OK. Uh, so I, I did law and economics. Heaven knows why, but I did. And I got both of them, but then that was only a D, a, a D in law and an E in economics. No, a D in economics and an E in law. And um, it still wasn't good enough to get into university. So I decided the best thing was to make myself in some way irresistible. And I thought of what I could do. And then I thought, well, what about VSO? You know, at least if I go, having done all that, I'll get a place. I, um, I mean, it was the best thing I've ever done in my life. I went to Uganda. I landed in Entebbe. I was met by the priest who ran the school. And just remind us, VSO, what it well, is. Voluntary service overseas is where you, particularly as a cadet as I was, I don't think I have cadets anymore, but you commit a year of your life uh, to doing something, anything you get told to do. And I was told to go off and be a teacher in a school on the banks of the Nile. 
uh, very, very remote, run by this Catholic priest. Uh, there were really only four four Mazungus, I think. A Mazungu was a white man, and everybody else. There were a few Indians, but basically uh, the rest were entirely African staff. And a big school, I mean, it was three or 400 kids, uh, secondary school. And, of course, some of them were brighter, well, most of them were brighter than I was, and some of them had got better A-levels than I had. But anyway, so there I was. And for the first month, I cried like a baby. I mean, you know, I was really homesick and thought, how on earth can I survive this? And from the second month, I was working out how I could stay there for the rest of my life. It was an absolutely spellbinding experience because you suddenly had massive responsibility at the age of 18. The futures of these kids hung on your every word, and you had to really beaver at it. And, you know, I mean... I've, every morning we would sing the Ugandan national anthem. Oh, Uganda, the land of freedom, we lay our future in thy hands. United we for liberty, together we'll always stand. Oh, Uganda, the land of freedom, And you'd be hoisting up the flag. Um, it, it was a, an, an absolutely intoxicating experience, even though there was no alcohol. I mean, it just was a wonderful, wonderful place to be. I made lots of friends on the staff, particularly the African teachers. And, of course, there was the River Nile running past your door. The tragedy was you couldn't swim in it because there were snails that carried Bill Hartzia. You know, you clearly loved it. I'm interested then in the fact that you did eventually go to university, to Liverpool University. To yeah, do you know how I did that? I mean, that's privilege for you. My dad, the bishop, was on a train and met the professor of law from Liverpool University, Professor Sheborn Dovish, who was literally the man who inherited the seat in the Commons from Lloyd George, but was by now the professor of law at Liverpool University. And uh, my, uh, my father blagged him into accepting me. And I was accepted into the law faculty. At least I had a law A-level, even if it was a very bad one. But actually, the funny thing was that as soon as I got there, I mean, the first year, I was at least halfway up the order, even though I was the thickest person in the class. And you know, out of about 80 or 90 intake, Why I was well over halfway up. Why do you think that was? Just worked harder? I don't know that I worked harder. I think I just grew up a bit. Interesting. Well, one of the things that happened is... You got expelled. Um, Steady. Um, this is a quote from you. I am grateful to Liverpool more than I can say. Being sent down was the best thing that ever happened to me. Tell us about why, because this is the height of the sort of student protest years, isn't it? I've already had a best thing that I ever did, which was VSO. But in fact, yes, it was a very good thing to be sent down. I, it was terrible at the time. I mean, we were very idealistic. We, we were campaigning for all sorts of causes. But this uh, was an occupation of the university building over its yeah, no, this, investments this, 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 in apartheid South Yes, Africa. I mean, there were two terrible things about Liverpool University. One was the, the Chancellor was Lord Salisbury, who was of the dynasty that founded White Rhodesia. And the second thing was that Liverpool itself, and the university in particular, was still, as it were, trading with South Africa in a big way. I mean, a lot of the university investments were in South Africa historically because of the, the Salisbury link. So it was not a satisfactory situation if you believed in the liberation of 
Africa, which, of course, having lived in Uganda, I did. So, you know, I was combustible. I was uh, designed for trouble. Were you one of the leaders then? Were you one of the... Um, They said I was. I mean, the university. I I was. I I was one. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't the... And, of course, it embraced a funny range of uh, sort of trots, commies, uh, pink liberals like me, you know, that sort of thing. So the leadership was very, very diverse. The university wouldn't discuss it with us at all. And so we we took over their administrative building, which cannot have been a, a very convenient thing to do. Uh, they were convinced we would wreck the building. Uh, in actual fact, my job was to clean the building uh, after a thousand of us had sat in. And uh, we made a great job of it. And they were very disappointed to find what good condition it was in. And that's why I got less than the other uh, people who were sent out. Ten of us were sent down, which is amazing. I mean, no university sends down ten students. But... Um, I was given the shortest sentence of one year, so I could have gone back. Some of the others were actually expelled altogether. But two years ago, they wrote to me and said, Dear Mr. Snow, we would like to offer you an honorary doctorate in law. Wow, amazing. Now, I could have said, oh, no, I'm not coming back there. But no, I felt completely vindicated. And uh, and I went back and got it and was allowed to give a, a talk. And And it's the most fabulous place these days. I mean, it's enlightened, diverse, interesting, go-getting. What did it teach you, that whole experience, in terms of your voice and how to use it? The protests? Well, I think probably to think a little harder before you speak. That might be quite an important thing and certainly a useful thing in television, especially if you've got to do live interviews. Think before you speak. Um, Because we could have been more subtle and cleverer about it. But, you know, you're hot-headed at 20 Can you give an example of something you said then that you think, oh, perhaps with hindsight I might have done it differently? I think the the most important word I ever said was to stand up and strut on the the, uh, stage of the student union and student union just say, occupy. And we all streamed out of the building and across the road and seized the Senate block in which all the administration of the university took place. And perhaps you're thinking that you could have done something different? Maybe. I've never really reviewed it, to be honest. It happened. And it informed me about life. I'm interested you then went back to volunteering and became involved in the New Horizon Youth Centre uh, for young homeless people in London. Well, I didn't volunteer. No? You no. got recruited. Uh, I, I applied. There was a fellow, strange peer called Lord Longford, who was extremely eccentric, but a very, very, you know, thoughtful and clever man. He wrote some significant reviews. He did one into um, pornography. He did. He did. He was looking for a new director of this day centre, which was in Soho. Uh, the truth was that the, the, the guy who had been doing it had a severe nervous breakdown. And so clearly it was a rather stressful job. And there were only there were only staff of three. I went to the interview and sitting behind the desk under St Anne's Church, Soho, was Lord Longford, Jack Profumo, and the chairman no. of British Airways, so Admiral is... Sir Matthew Slattery. And three, peons, three peons of the British establishment, one of whom had suffered even greater disgrace than I had in being sent down from university. So we had an immediate uh, link with each other. And just to say, this is uh, John Profumo, the John former Profumo, minister who'd resigned in the scandal over Christine Keeler. Indeed, indeed. Well, his misfortune was that he slept with a woman who slept with a Russian attaché at military attaché at the Russian embassy so that was not a very good idea but then he'd lied about it well then he lied about it but both were slightly serious for a man who was the minister of war (laughs) when we were supposed to be having a tense time with Russia 
What did that experience teach you? Running that uh, compassion, I think, more than anything else. Um, these were kids who'd, you know, come from very messy circumstance, and some of whom were on drugs, some were, but but all of them were homeless, and um, you know, very much without love. And so to establish a safe place where they could be during the day. The tragedy was that we had no resource to send them anywhere at night because there was nothing. I mean, uh, it's like that to this day, to some extent. I mean, I'm still involved with the project. You are. It's called the New Horizon Youth Centre. And now we have actual beds in various blocks of housing around the area in which the day centre is set, which is near Euston Station in London. But in those days, there really was very, very little uh, that you could ever send anybody to. I mean, there was the Sally Army, but it was very old people. Um, you know, younger people were just not catered for. I wonder as well, because I've watched how you are when you've done outside broadcasts or you vox popping young people. And you get on really well with students and young people. And I know you're a bit of a cult figure to them anyway. And I wonder if it does go back to these times when you were volunteering, when you were only in your early 20s yourself, hmm. um, Perhaps that you've maintained. I don't know, but I, I like people. Empathy. That's one of the problems. I mean, it's. It, it, I find talking to people very, very easy. That's why I don't mind the selfie rage and the rest of it, because it gives you an opportunity to ask people what they do and find out about them and that sort of thing. I mean, it is life's a constant adventure. You're constantly finding things, people, events, drifts, thoughts that are going on. You said it's one of the problems is that you get on very well with people, you like people. You make it sound like there's something... Well, it does take quite a bit of time. You know, you, um, you, know you, go, go, you go shopping or something, get some stuff from the supermarket. You inevitably meet, inevitably meet people who want to have a chat. It's a blessing and a curse. So you joined ITN, you joined radio initially, as independent yes. radio news as it was, which was a major provider of... Yeah, of, but I didn't join it as a journalist. Well, and I, I still had it. no real idea of having doing journalism. Basically, in 1973, the government changed the law because until then, the only legal radio stations were BBC. And there were some illegal radio stations in the Thames estuary outside um, territorial waters, that sort of thing, Radio Caroline and that sort of thing. But... Um, there were no legal commercial stations. They legalized commercial radio. And LBC was going to have a breakthrough thing, which was to be on air all night with a phone-in. You could phone in all night and there'd be a bit of, you know, talk, chatter and the rest were a guest. But the big thing was the public could phone in. Now, they were bright enough to recognize that at four o'clock in the morning, probably there would be people who would call in who would be too bonkers to go on air. And then something would have to be done with them. So I was hired to talk down the people who were too bonkers to go on air and suggest to them the other things they could do beyond actually appearing on LBC at four in the morning. But in fact, of course, they realised very quickly that the only people who called in were too bonkers to go on air. And if they didn't go on air, there wasn't anybody to go on air. So they were often rather crazy times during those nights, but there was no job for me to do. Well, interestingly, commercial radio, when it started in Britain, was entirely manned by New Zealanders, Australians... Americans, Canadians, people who'd actually done commercial radio. Well, they said to me, look, you know, you're cheap 
and you know, I, although you're not trained, you've got you've got a plummy voice. Uh, could you would you mind doing the news? So I read the news at six o'clock in the morning. Then they went bankrupt, and the new editor came along and said, "Look, I'm terribly sorry. You can do better than read the news. Get out and do some reporting." And that was it. And very quickly, I was out on the road. You've always been a reporter. You've never been someone who's just wanted to sit in the studio. Talk me through your move to ITN, sort of the main commercial television broadcaster, because as a correspondent, you know, you were a Washington correspondent. You covered the Vietnam boat people. You were in Afghanistan. Did you find your voice as an international and a war correspondent, indeed, easily? Uh, Very easily, yeah. I mean, I, I just found it easy to look at things and talk about them. (laughs) <laughs> and obviously people. I liked I liked talking to people. But actually what happened was that ITN wanted a reporter. I didn't want to apply because my cousin Peter was there and I didn't want to look like nepotism. And so I, I, I refused to apply. And then eventually I was in Ireland covering a siege, an IRA siege, and I got a message from the editor of ITN, Nigel Ryan, saying... You just have to write one paragraph saying you're prepared to come and work and you can have a job. So I thought, God, I'm going to have to do this, aren't I? Well, obviously I wanted to be moving on, so I moved on. And, you know, effectively I've been there ever since. That's 45 years ago. You've won so many awards for your journalism. Well, I wouldn't go on about them. (laughs) Well, okay, I will go on, but I'm just mentioning they have. And I read that your reporting from El Salvador in the early 1980s Mm. was one of the stories that meant most to you. You got stopped by a death squad, didn't you? Yes, El Salvador was, and still is, a very, very tragic scene. It's the, The tragedy for those Central American states that live between the United States, Mexico, and the... Latin America, is that they're the squeezed middle and they're neglected and fiddled about with, particularly by the Americans in those days. They were seen as a terrible threat to to the United States. There was a civil war going on in El Salvador in which the Americans backed the army and the priests backed the people. It was the people versus the army with a dictator and all the rest of it. Below, in the yard of the police station, heavily armed police return from making their rounds. There are countless instances of deaths and disappearances in which they have been found to have played a role. Yet they are armed with NATO weaponry, which the United States is continuing to supply. John Snow, News at 10, San Salvador. I went because the Archbishop, Cardinal Archbishop of El Salvador, was murdered on the steps of his own high altar. This is called, um, it was really Romero. Romero. Who's in the process of being um, canonised. Yes, he'll become a saint. Yes. And deservedly so. He was a real you know, battler for the people. Wonderful man. And, of course, it was the age of liberation theology in which God was used to justify, you know, fighting for the rights of the poor and the rest of it. It, it was an amazing, amazing experience because anyone who's been to Latin America will know that Latin or Central America, uh, it's um, vivid colours, ama- amazing vibrance and activity and the rest of it. But tragically, El Salvador is riddled with gangs and crime. It's got no better since my my days there in the 1980s. And the dangers faced by journalists, which endure to this day, you know, in, in countries like El Salvador and, and Mexico, you did come close to getting murdered on that trip, uh, Well, didn't you? Uh, yes. A Dutch journalist had been killed 
and we very stupidly went to try and find out why and where. We went down a track off the high road and were immediately surrounded by a group of gunmen. And we had an Italian, lovely Marcello, who lived in El Salvador, and he was our guide, spoke perfect Spanish. And he sort of negotiated and negotiated with them, giving cigarettes and the rest of it, and the rest of it. And eventually we did manage to wriggle free, but it was a close-run thing. What story are you most proud of covering? Crumbs. I can give you a prompt. Could you? <laughs> I, gather, I, mean, I, mean, I gather it was the Iranian Revolution because so few well, journalists were actually mm, there when the revolution mm, yeah. was beginning. And it was well, a socialist revolution to start, well, wasn't it? Yeah, I suppose unquestionably the Iranian Revolution was an extraordinary challenge because there were millions of people on the streets. There were tremendous vested interests in there not being a revolution in terms of Britain, America, yes. all the usual suspects were thoroughly against the whole idea of the Shah being overthrown, the rest. The Shah wasn't a terribly clever individual and didn't really do much good for the country. And it was pretty clear that this educated population uh, was very much ready for change. Whether it was ready for radical Islam, I, I don't know. Of course, the other thing about Iran is that in that region, it is different from any other country because it is a, a Shia state, yeah. a Shia Islam, as opposed to Sunni Islam. And the most, the, most of the countries in the region are Sunni. And slightly fear, and I think actually really envy the Shias, because the Shias, I mean, that's a, Iran is a six and a half thousand year old civilization. It's a place of immense beauty with fabulous oh, no, no, I've cities. just come back from making a documentary there about oh, its history, and well, it is the most amazing culture. It is, and the mosques are incredibly beautiful and, and on a vast scale. And there's a life there that you can see was oppressed under the Shah. And you can see that outside forces fiddled about and in many ways brought us what the, situ the situation that exists now, where there's still a wonderful population in Iran, but there are now very radical and despairing uh, characters, you know, who in are charge. armed and, and in charge. Yeah. I want to ask about something very different. Um, well, not entirely in charge. I mean, that's not quite fair. In fact, I mean, they are a huge force, but the government is, in a sense, unable really to do much without their say-so. I want to ask about something very different. After the Jimmy Savile abuse scandal broke, you spoke out very thoughtfully about how a member of school staff had tried to abuse you when you were very young, when mm. you were just six. Mm. Was it difficult deciding to talk about that? Um, I know you'd put it in your book as well. Well, the t I put it in my book because it was the first time I'd ever mentioned it to anybody since I was a child. I never discussed it with anybody. And yet I know in retrospect, my family must have known but it was that age when, when I think parents of a certain condition and class couldn't bring themselves to talk sex in any form. But the guy was um, a domestic servant uh, in, in the school. My father was headmaster. And I was, I think I was six. I was tricycling around on my own past the kitchen quarters. And this guy we knew as Jim 
uh, simply said, uh, I mean, we knew him quite well. I mean, it always said, hey, hello, have a chat, etc. But nothing more menacing. And he said, uh, I- I've got some some sweets for you. Come upstairs, usual trap, yeah. you know. And I went up and uh, he took all my clothes off. He um, tore all his clothes off. This was all in his room. And uh, then a voice that I recognised, which was that of the bursar, bellowed from down the passage, Jim, Jim. And he suddenly changed completely and threw me under the bed. He, he had been aroused, and heaven knows what that would have entailed. But anyway, he threw me under the bed, which was filthy and horrible, and there was a pot in there with a the urine in it, etc. And um, he went out, banged the door, and there were raised voices in the in the corridor. And then he came in and back and said, get out. And so I came out from under the bed, uh, get dressed. And I couldn't do up my braces, and he wouldn't do my braces up, my shorts. So I sort of struggled out holding up my trousers. I mean, the whole thing was awful. Somehow... I got home and nobody ever said anything. And he stayed on the staff? No, no, he was He was, he was sacked. But I knew that because we knew him well enough to have seen him and when we didn't see him, we knew he'd gone. Um, and then we asked various people and they said he'd been sacked. But I never said why, I wanted to know. But it, it, it's an impossible thing for a child of six really to raise yeah. with with parents who were not really very plugged into childhood. But I think about how many abuse scandals have been big news events over the last decade. Many of them are still just coming out. And you've been interviewing, you know, those in charge, explaining, well, we didn't have a proper procedure. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how you feel when you're covering these stories. On the one hand, you're just a journalist doing your job. On the other hand, you really know. Well, no, it's not something I ever really think about. I mean, less provoked, but not provoked by news. It's, you know, it's... It's so remote from mm. now. You know, it's 60 years ago or more. So I, I don't think about it, but but I can tell it now. Yes, no, I understand. And that that's cleansing. You'll know that you're regarded as um, something of a left-wing rebel by your admirers and your critics. And at the BBC, there's been a very significant kind of clampdown recently on presenters on social media because of the need for impartiality. Have you felt pressure to, to temper your voice? Uh, particularly well, as I, the, I, the climate's got more and more I agitated. I wouldn't argue, I wouldn't suggest that I'm a lefty, really. I mean, although... You're regarded as... I, I can think. tell you that when I once went round to visit, to, 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 there was a cocktail party at, at, um, at the Reese Moggs, and uh, I knocked on the door, and the door was opened by his son, and his son turned around to his father in the passage and said, Dad, it's that lefty off the telly. <laughs> but I, I wouldn't say I'm a lefty, no. I, I would say I'm somebody who wants the truth. I, I'm, I'm not aligned to any party. I've never been a member of a party. I'm certainly not ideological. I was regarded in the Liverpool insurrection you know, at the university. I was regarded as a very odd fish who didn't appear to have any ideological interest at all. Well, it's interesting because... I've never read Marx or anything like that. I'm not interested in any of that. No, but interesting, the security services have tried to recruit you, haven't they? They did, yeah. Uh, I got a letter saying, Dear Mr Snow, I'm in... Oh, it was headed Old War Office Buildings, which I think is where they were in those days. But anyway, uh, and it said, I'm currently engaged in some work in which I think you might be interested. If you are interested in discussing this further, please, uh, you know, 
ring the number above or whatever. If you're not interested, please destroy this letter and do not discuss its contents with anyone. So I was obvious what that was. Uh, and I thought, well, this would be interesting. I'm just going to find out about this. Not that I wanted to work for the security service, but I wanted to see what recruitment looked like. Mm. And I, at that point, I was at, a, at ITN just recently, perhaps a year or two in. So I concluded that in those days, there probably was some kind of a sleeper in in ITN. Mm, this would have been the 70s. What did they want you to do then? Did they oh, go that far? Um, well, not really. No, I didn't get any very clear picture of of what, in fact, I... But he asked me a lot of questions. We got on rather well. It was an entirely curtained room. It's a bit eerie. One didn't know quite what was going on. But anyway, I mean, I had a perfectly good discussion with him. And then he said, can I arrange to see you again? And I said, no, I'm not, not interested at all. Uh, and he said, well, he was quite upset about it. And he said, well, we've invested a lot of effort in, in you. We've looked at you and you were ideal material. I said, no, I, I'm absolutely not interested and they said, you're never to contact us again, and we will never contact you again. But when I was in Iran, I had managed to find, because my father was the Bishop of Whitby, there was um, an array of early warning sta- station uh, domes um, oh, at yes. Filingdales. Yes. And in 1970, I had driven to India and seen these domes on the hills above the Caspian Sea on the Iranian coast of the Caspian Sea, it had always been in my mind that there was a listening station there. And when the revolution happened, it was so dense trying to work in Tehran itself, so difficult to move, millions and millions of people on the streets, that I said to my crew the day after the revolution, I said, we need to explain why this matters. And I'll tell you why it matters. Because they have a listening post up on the Caspian Sea and it listens to the Russian uh, nuclear tests in the Urals. That's their main monitoring point. We've got to find it. And they said, well, where is it? You've passed it. You've been there before in 1970, you say. And I said, well, the awful thing is I don't know which end of the Caspian Sea it was. And so I had to drag my poor crew right along the entire coast of the Caspian Sea. And there, heavens preserve us, we'd set off at six in the morning. And at four in the afternoon, we saw the golf balls. We saw the domes. And we drove up there, and there were two desultory 16-year-olds sitting with automatic weapons on their laps. And they were thrilled to see us. Nobody had been to see them. And it was very clear that the place had been evacuated by the Americans in a very great speed. There were pyjamas on the beds. There was still breakfast on the tables. They had no idea what they were doing. Uh, They just sat there on the chairs, the two young boys who were looking after the place. And I went to try and find a way into one of the domes, and the crew were very worried that it was going to explode, that it had been booby-trapped. So they were solemnly saying, throwing stones into this place full of whirring, crude computers, huge boxes, lots of paper pouring out with zigzags on it and the rest of it. We realised that was it, and we filmed it like Billio, went back to Tehran, and at four o'clock in the morning... Mr Snow? Yes? Mr Snow, I need to talk to you. I said, sorry, who are you? I can't explain until we speak to each other face to face. I do need to come in. It is four o'clock in the morning. Can you wait till the morning? No, it needs to be now. So he opened the door. Hello, uh, my name is Brewer. I'm the military attaché at, uh, uh, at the British Embassy. I understand you have been to a very secret place and that you have a very great deal of film. And I'm afraid I must ask you for your film. I said, I'm very sorry, but you're British. I'm in Iran. You have no power over me at all. No, get stuffed. 
He said, no, 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 this won't do. And I said, well, it will. I'm sorry, but that's it. No, he said, I, I, I need, there are some things there that must not be transmitted. I said, well, look, I'll tell you what, I'll do a deal with you. You, uh, you, you tell me, we, we'll, we'll get this stuff processed and then we'll, we'll, we'll you tell me what, what's sensitive and I'll cut it out if, if I think I can manage without it. And um, in return, I want you to tell me where the latest Foxbat jet fighters, which America supplied the Shah just before the fall, are, because they are the only ones that were exported by the United States and they must be of enormous value to this regime, etc., etc. Oh, he said, well, I can tell you that. Yes, I'll tell you. So we did it and we cut out various things. Occasionally he would shriek while looking at the, the film. He would say... Oh, my God, no, no, you can't possibly show that. No, 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 please cut it. At one. No, no. But then, you know, we got enough to make a really good story. And then I said, no, hello, Colonel, could you give me the info? And he said, oh, yes, you go to Shiraz, second round, roundabout in. Uh, you take the third exit. You drive a mile and a half along. And on the left-hand side, you will see an airfield. And the far end, there are five bunkers. And that's where they are. Excellent. Well, I have to ask about poppies. Your decision not to wear a membrance poppy would have caused fury every November. You've chosen to stick with it when some would say it just draws more attention than if you quietly wore one. Well, I don't really believe in wearing symbols. I think there are ways of remembering people and I would prefer to remember them in church, on my, well, on my knees, whatever. I don't want to be told how to remember people. And I think there's quite a lot of hocus-pocus around it. Oh, you're not wearing one, or you're wearing a white one. This won't do, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we're, we're a free society, and people need to be allowed to remember people the way they want to. Well, in a way, it's a precursor to the situation we're in now, where the atmosphere around reporting and politics has become very aggressive. Your live comment on Channel 4 News in March at a Westminster Brexit rally that you'd never seen so many white people in one place led to an Ofcom inquiry after more than 2,000 people complained. Have you felt you've needed to change how you use your voice? No, not at all. It was perfectly correct. And in fact, Ofcom invented it, investigated it and it cleared me completely. But what do you feel about the atmosphere now? As someone who's been in the business of reporting for so many years, many journalists feel the atmosphere has become well, far I, too hostile. I, I, I think that uh, Brexit as a, an, in, uh, an issue has somehow divided the country in a way I've never seen before. And that's terribly sad. What can we do about it? I have no idea. I mean, I never know how the country's going to move from one day to the next. And nor do you. And nor does anybody else. But you still love the job. Very much. You've turned down an honour. I know you've been offered them. How, I, I was offered that... an OBE. I mean, interestingly, the BBC itself ran a very good documentary the other day on black honours and how ethnic minorities find it difficult to accept something which has the word empire in it. I mean... What is an officer of the British Empire? What is a knight commander of the British Empire? What is the British Empire? I mean, I don't know. I'm still waiting to find out. John Snow, thank you. You've been listening to How I Found My Voice. I'm Samira Ahmed and the producer is Farah Jasset. We'd love to hear from you. Let us know what you think of this episode by rating it and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts.
Hello again, it's Farah Jassat, producer of How I Found My Voice. We really hope you enjoyed this week's show. Don't forget to subscribe and tune in to our episode next week. In the meantime, we wanted to give a big shout out to our sponsor, The Out, an innovative premium car rental service powered by Jaguar Land Rover. If you're a Londoner and want to get out of the city for a weekend, download The Out app for a premium hassle-free experience. Choose from a range of cars, including the Range Rover Sport and all-electric Jaguar I-Pace. The car will be delivered and picked up from your doorstep. You get unlimited mileage, additional drivers, fully comprehensive insurance, and even the congestion and dart charge included. Download the Out app today.